Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Hey folks, welcome to Making Data Simple. This podcast is coming to you from France. I'm traveling on business right now. No, I'm not having fun. Uh, but I don't have my fancy mic, so hopefully it's going to work today. I have just had my espresso, although with the two folks I have on today, I don't know that I'm going to need it, but I have had my espresso because we're seven hours different from uh, the time zone that I'm normally in, and I was going down for a moment. Uh, I'm going to do my best today. I have the best sellers in the business today. Matt Kaczynski, VP Data and AI Automation Americas, and Frank Atai, who's the GM Technology Canada. We were in a bar not long ago, and I'm not making this up. We're in a bar and we were talking about the art of selling. And we said, hey, we got to get this on the podcast. So we don't have any alcohol with us today. At least I don't know. These guys may have something under the desk. I'm not sure, particularly on Matt. He, he probably does have something, maybe a little something in his coffee. I'm not sure, but uh, we'll still make it extremely uh, enjoyable for you. We may go a little all over the place, but that's why I have a producer so that we can uh, patch it back in. Matt and Frank, thank you for being with me today. We're gonna have some fun. Awesome, excited to be here. Thanks for having us. Really, really happy to be here. I was, I was, I saw the fear of, a look of fear in Matt's face when you said this all started in a bar, not just, you know, don't wanna throw any arrows. <laughs> he was but guilty, I was wasn't he? He was thinking, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we had is- great ambitions in the bar, but now it's gotta be real. Right. Just so we got about 30,000 people that listen to us regularly. Now we just we're at a bar. Just imagine us. We're on the stage. Uh, we're having a cocktail, but there's 30,000 people watching us and listening to us. Then. So be ready. Hey, Love here's it. what I'd ask. Matt, introduce yourself. If you would give, give us a little bit of your experience and what brings you to the role you have today. And then, Frank, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, sure. Um, this is Matt Kaczynski. I think you gave a good brief intro, Al. Um, I have what I call probably the best job in IBM, right? I have our data and AI and automation business in our largest geography. Um, and I get to work every day with uh, not only Frank, but five other uh, market GMs here at IBM on bringing our technology to bear and solving our clients' most complex problems. Um, in that role, there's probably about 1,500 field professionals. So this is everything from uh, technical sales to sales to some of our elite teams that help uh, clients with proof of value. Uh, So the whole gamut. So um, that's why I say I've got the best job in IBM, hottest area um, and the biggest geography and an awesome team. Terrific. Frank, your turn. Uh, so, so Matt's got the second best job at IBM because he, he hasn't, we haven't given him citizenship to Canada yet, um, but I try to convince him every once in a while. Uh, so I have the best job at IBM in the best market that we've got globally. Just saying team, I, uh, I'm, a, I'm an international man of mystery, but I am Canadian. Um, wonderful to see that you're in Paris today, Al, but I run the Canadian market for IBM uh, for all of our go-to-market folks in technology sales. I've been you know, 20 plus years at uh, you know, the IBM company. Uh, I, I tell people I um, started my career in retail bank finance, which I know sounds very, very exciting. Uh, and I quickly realized that um, it just wasn't for me. And that uh, when I was deciding which company to, uh, to go to, and it's kept me here for 22 years, coming on 22 years now, is the company that I work for was really closely partnered with IBM and relied on IBM to solve their most significant um, problems. And, and we were essential and we are essential. 
So I've been in sales jobs, all of them, you know, leading market teams over the last 20 years. Um, and what keeps me here is we're constantly, constantly investing and reinventing and we're essential. And I tell people we're, we're not in the sales job, actually. We're in the problem solving business. And uh, I partner a lot with this fellow on the phone here, Mr. Kaczynski, because as he said, he isn't a pretty exciting uh, area of the company. And uh, I got to tell you, what we're doing in data and AI and automation is incredible. And it's uh, when you're solving problems, this job they call sales is really, really easy to do. And, well, and, and to, just to Frank's point, since fr Frank was um, bragging a little bit about uh, where he started at the company. So I, I forgot to mention that. I actually started in IBM microelectronics division. Um, I've been in software for the last several years, but I started in microelectronics. And I always say that's the best $3 billion business IBM ever had. It just costs $4 billion to run, right? So it doesn't, those things don't last forever. But um, to the point of being essential and solving problems, um, doing that role uh, coming out of undergrad, I mean, talk about getting technical very fast. Um, that, that really set me up, you know, on my career, but also my love for technology. Now, Frank, just to be clear, for Canada, you have all software and hardware as well? Yeah, I have all technology, right? So I've got the, you know, there's obviously the software business, our systems business, our cybersecurity mandate, uh, our cloud business. I remind people we have five cloud data centers in Canada, all of our technical support uh, services, you know, our, our ecosystem business as well. So all things technology for IBM in Canada. Very good. Very good. So here's where I think I'm going to start. We want to talk about sales. That's our topic today or the art of selling or great selling. Uh, but we can go wherever you guys want to go because I just enjoy watching you guys fight. Look, uh, I have had stints in support. Uh, I've run development. Uh, I've run expert labs delivery. This is my first stint in sales as a title. In other words, you could always say you're in sales, uh, which I've, I've been selling all my life. But my, my first stint on an incentive plan, responsible for technical sales, which you guys are both wrong, is the best job in IBM, the one that I hold. So I've been here since January. I'm gonna start out, what advice do you give me? Get the hell out. <laughs> what advice do you give somebody coming into an organization? I'm running it at a global level. You know, we've got about, you know, I don't know, close to 5,000 uh, technical sales and you count everybody top to bottom. Uh, you've got local market dynamics. You've got different geo dynamics. Look, what's your advice? What do you say, Frank? I'll go to you first. So uh, my, my best advice to you is um, find the biggest challenge and the biggest opportunity. Okay, and when and the, the same holds true whether you're dealing with an individual client, or a market, or a geography, um, because people pay attention when you're focused on the right problem statement. I say find the biggest one because it's got to be material, uh, and then really focus on how your team can solve that problem in a unique and differentiated manner. I mean, that's the definition of value. People talk a lot about, you know, what sales is and, um, you know, what's difficult and what's not difficult. You know, I find when we put our clients first and we put the problem statement first and we solve it in a unique way, this job is really, really easy um, because you don't have to worry about prioritization because if it's a big enough of a problem, it's going to get prioritized. Um, and you don't need to worry about getting lost in the shuffle if you do it in a unique and differentiated manner, because there's a lot of people in the marketplace that do what we do. But if we focus on really what makes us different and how we drive that incremental value, whether you're brand new in the company, you know, starting in digital sales with one small brand, uh, or you're like yourself running, you know, global technical sales or Matter I, you can't go wrong. Yeah, I think 
just to simplify it, right? I think I agree with everything Frank said. I like to say, you know, it's all about having an informed point of view, right? And I kind of break that into two things, right? In order to have an informed point of view, you need preparation, right? Preparation doesn't have anything to do with the degree or the school you went. It's a want to thing, right? So in the past, when I think about preparation, it's like somebody say to me, I checked out their LinkedIn profile and I know who they're connected to. That's not the preparation I'm talking about. I'm talking about you've looked into their company reports. If it's a CDO, you understand what is in their responsibility. Are they concerned with regulation, uh, certain legislation that came out on how they're using data, the whole trusted AI top, like that level of preparation. That's number one. And the number two is skill, particularly in my area of the business. Um, we have to be the best, the subject matter expert at any given topic, data warehousing, ML ops, right? And that takes time. It's, it's part of the preparation, but preparation to build skills allows you to have an informed POV, right? Uh, point of view. And I just think right now with how valuable our time is and our clients, that's so critical uh, to sales at this point. Say more on your secret to preparation, Matt. So let me give you a, a, an example. If somebody called you, said, hey, you got two hours. I need you to go visit. Pick your largest bank in the United States. I need you to come with me. They're interested in some data fabric and some automation. But look, I don't have more information than that. What are the first steps you take? Oh, uh, so number one is, I, uh, people think I'm a little bit crazy, but I automatically go to anything on their landing page that has to do with customer care, right? I, I go through an experience of, I have a question about their product or service. You can instantly see holes. And then I apply that to how our conversational AI could dramatically improve ROI customer set. If I'm going into a client meeting with a CDO who I've heard uses uh, open source uh, uses tools from multiple vendors like ourselves, um, has a team of 50 data scientists, right? I start to reach out to my network to say, well, are these guys just building models, right? Uh, do they have any governance over the models? Because like right now that's a hot topic as you've seen, uh, both of you probably seen that, you know, not just the typical regulation that a certain industry would have, but states are passing laws that say, Anytime you're using automation to make core business decisions, you need to be able to provide audit, an audit, uh, explainability or do a biased audit on those models and why they made the decisions. So I'll dig deeper into that kind of stuff so I can go immediately with an informed point of view that says, hey, you've got a great team of data scientists, but based on XYZ new regulation, here's an area where we can augment what you're doing. I'm not a replacement guy. If, if somebody's made a decision on a technology, I'm never concerned with that. I'm always thinking about how we can help augment that to make the experience better for their end clients or their, or their internal employees. Yeah, I, I would say, and, and being prepared, and Matt hit it, is, is, is so important, but you also can't cram and you can't catch up. I'll use a quick story. So um, <laughs> I was a young rep uh, dealing with a new client and the client was Nike in Canada. And the client call went well, but she got me, the CIO, on the way out the door and said, hey, listen, uh, we're doing this charity run. It's a fun run. It's 10 kilometers or whatever that is, five, six miles. And we want you to participate. And it's uh, it's two weeks from now. I'm like, well, I want to please the client. So, yeah, I should do that. 
uh, now what I realized, cause I wasn't, uh, didn't run actively. I used to be a rugby player, but I certainly wasn't someone running 10 K 20 K marathons. And I realized as I was taking the ferry, because it was going to the Toronto Island and that everyone looked very prepared and very stretched that I was in deep trouble. Okay. Uh, I had a, a coffee, a double You're locked in, I think at this point, but keep going. Yeah. I had a, first of all, I was a different body shape than most of the people getting ready for the run. Uh, I had a double, double coffee in Canada. That's two cream, two sugar and a bagel. And I realized as I was trying to stretch on the boat, I was nowhere near prepared. Okay. For, for where, what we needed to do. So, clients pay us to have an informed opinion on our subject and their business. Now, whether it's Matt or I running into a bank, I'm probably not going to become an expert on that bank in two hours. But what is my currency? My currency is I should know a heck of a lot more than data and AI and automation than the people I'm meeting with or else why are they meeting with me? And I should have an informed opinion in terms of what's going on in the marketplace and in their industry. So out of the gate, there's value. Okay. I'll do what I can to get prepared in those two hours. But, you know, we talk a lot and you'd mentioned, you know, I've got the best job. I'm in technical. Matt talks about some of the eminence he's built in his experience in microelectronics. We all have to be technical or, or we undervalue ourselves with our client because they've come to expect or they should come to expect that they're going to learn something meaningful about their industry, about their business or about technology. And that preparation doesn't happen, you know, on the stretch over to the ferry when you're going to run a 10k hey so you gotta tell me what happened did you run it did, did you so did you take the chicken exit it, what it, was, it was ugly so, <laughs> so it was ugly true, true story because i'm stubborn like a mule as matt would a, 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 attest to so i ran most of it i couldn't i wasn't in good enough shape i ran and i walk and then i took the ferry back and i was sitting on the bench and i couldn't get up when we got to the other side of the boat and everyone was unloading, I literally couldn't get out of the bench. Uh, so it, it, <laughs> I did eventually, but uh, well, that, so that run stayed with me for a couple of weeks. Put it talk, about, talk about character building. Yeah. <laughs> Humility. Are you to the customer or did uh, it essentially say this guy's an idiot? <laughs> no, they, they knew I was committed. That's for sure. And I dragged even worse. I dragged my wife who was a competitive runner. So she was fine. And uh, my sister-in-law uh, who, uh, was also not a runner, but she was smart enough to just go on a long walk while I tried to, to run the entire thing. Well, hopefully you didn't have cocktails the night before. Uh, I, I'll stay silent on the subject. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Matt, I got another question for you. So do you have a philosophy when it comes to sales? I mean, is there are you a value seller or um, you probably read the challenger seller, teach, t- tailor, take control. Is Is that a model you abide by? Do you have your own model? What's your philosophy? Well, I think it's different internal or external to some extent. I think externally, I would say I appreciate a lot of the learnings of something like the challenger sale. Um, But, you know, I think I've graduated past some of that. Um, There's a big listening element. You you can be a challenger, which is tied to having an informed POV. But if you jump the gun on the challenger before listening, it could be catastrophic, right? So, there's attributes in, in multiple uh, sales leadership uh, literature and learning that I, I pull from, um, but I always try to have a balance, right? So it's always centered around the informed point of view and listening. Um, but obviously, you know, I'm passionate about the subject that I'm talking to the client about. So there's going to be a challenger element to it. And I think clients appreciate that. I think internally, there's a lot more um, 
And I'd say externally too, but the, the interpersonal aspect of it, I think is pretty important, right? Um, the, some people may view these things as common sense, but you know, being authentic and transparent, right, is, is core to that, right? So um, if I'm asking something of my team, I kind of pause and say, would I do that myself, right? And I always make sure it is something I do myself. And that builds the kind of culture that you're trying to do, right? To have the people put the time into prepare, to have the people have an informed point of view, right? So um, one of the, the, the really most basic things is I will always tell my team before a big meeting or a big quarter coming up, here's the things that you can expect from me during this given quarter. Before I even broach the topic of what the business needs from them and us as a collective team, right? Um, that's an aspect of the interpersonal piece internally. I think externally, my strategy is really simple. If a client is using a competitive technology uh, or open source, or and I think it's the right fit for what their problem is, I will literally tell them, I think you're probably good with that. But here's how we could take it to the next level. Here's how we could solve the problem that will come next off of the one you just solved. And coincidentally, my skill, my team skills, our technology will play a core part in that. Question. A lot of people say listening. You let the client outline their problem statement, their direction, maybe in their architecture, et cetera. But what does listening really mean to you? What is the balance between listening and providing your informed point of view? Because many people talk about it, like we're talking about it here, but I've been in a many a seller meeting where we're not listening. And those same people would say, hey, you got to start with listening. So what is that balance? I think it's about not just being respectful, but comprehending. Because, you know, people say, are you listening to me? Can you hear me? It's got to be about comprehension. There was a, if I remember, uh, I think it was a CA commercial, like in like 10, 15 years ago, where there's someone trying to sell something to someone and the, the customer saying, hey, listen, I'm kind of a small company. And the sales guy's going, hey, great. How about 500 licenses it is? And you're just giving the message and the client saying, well, I, I don't really know what's going on. Wonderful. 500 licenses it is. Um, listen, we, we can have a point of view. And by the way, we can be right. And I use quotation mark, but I have a saying, you can be right or you can be rich, you know, meaning you walk in, you give an opinion uh, and the customer hasn't had the opportunity to express where they are in the journey Sometimes they don't know what they're struggling with. We can absolutely have the right answer, but giving them the opportunity to talk and then comprehending, listening to what they're saying and then asking questions to qualify, you know, whether our uh, technology is the right fit or not, and our chances of success are going to go up so significantly. But if the client doesn't feel they have a voice, they don't feel that we are listening and comprehending and translating into how we solve a problem, our odds of success are going to go down pretty materially. Um, and you'll end up in the same spot in terms of the solution from where you started, but that journey with the client and giving them the opportunity to go through their own discovery path sometimes is so essential to solving a problem because, you know, you can't solve a problem a client doesn't know they have sometimes, you know, uh, and, and listening and comprehending and communicating and personalizing and taking them through the journey is an essential part of it. Just, uh, I think Frank's spot on. The, the only thing I would add is like back to the point of preparation and it takes a while to get to this point, but you're proud of the preparation that you do, right? 
which sometimes impacts your ability to listen because you want to to uh, give the answer before the question comes from the client, right? So I just think um, that just comes with experience and patience. But I've gone into plenty of meetings where I thought I was the most prepared, but by that client spending the first 10 minutes telling me the problem that I thought I understood intimately, but there was a couple nuances to it, become much more successful exiting by me doing that because I was able to alter my informed, quote unquote, point of view before I gave it to them by just listening. I mean, it's 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 straightforward. It, it comes with a patience element, too. And, and I know, Al, you want to word in edgewise here. I, and just building on Matt, I had a client call last week with a pretty senior executive at a large telco and the team had done a lot of good work and they had prepared me uh, and they're, they had informed opinions and they were working on the ground and they said, okay, here's the problem. Here's where they're at. Here's where we've been coached. So Frank, here's where you want to go with them. You know, here's the interesting thing, guys. I asked the question first, Hey, I know you guys are looking at this piece of transformative business here. My team spent a lot of time with your team on the ground, but listen, I'm new to this. So do you mind in your own words, giving me your view? This gentleman gave me the complete opposite view, okay? The complete opposite, which is there's a lot of opinions that think we need to be doing the following things. They're not right. Here are our problems. Here's what we need to do, and you need to bring the following perspective. If I would have went in out of the gate and led with my chin, I called it, he would have knocked it right off, okay? And there's, by the way, my team is not tone deaf. They're not ignorant. They asked the questions at the working level. They had convinced themselves they had the right view. And by the way, they still may be right in the long run, but just by asking the question to the client, getting their perspective, I pivoted, obviously, how I went uh, in the conversation. And now we're going to put two pieces together and bring a, you know, a thoughtful and methodical way of solving the problem and probably take this client on their own journey to realize that their team is probably right about some of these things. But I mean, without asking the questions, right? And, and just because my team is so confident, we have the solution, it wasn't going to go well, uh, if I didn't ask the question. Well, in terms of listening and preparation, I can tell you, I am personally relentless about my line of questioning that I ask when I'm going to go to a client. I'm almost like a, a comedian or stand-up or something. I'm writing this stuff down. I'm working it, working it. I'm researching 10Ks and stuff, then working it. I, my goal is to make the customer pause and go, wow, uh, I hadn't thought about that, you know, and and then really come up with some insightful feedback that really drives the engagement. But if I had a nickel for every time I sat in a, a meeting where somebody just threw out, hey, what keeps you up at night, which I cringe at. I mean, it's like, to me, that's the quintessential flag that says you've done nothing. But you guys tell me, well, one, is there anything that you cringe at? But two, how do you prepare your line of questions? Any tips you can give me? Uh, I'll go first, Matt, and then you can go. The question that makes me cringe is how can I help you? Like, it's such a vanilla question. And if you've got a good enough of a relationship and people are really desperate and they see value already, they're going to say, okay, here's how you can help me, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. But a lot of clients, especially the executives, will look at you and just kind of small smile, you know, and say, okay, well, you know, then they'll tell you, you need to do better at the job you're in and you need to fix all your stuff that doesn't work. And you know, that the, and it's the same point. It's like, what, what keeps you up at night? Similar thought. How can I help you is just too generic of a question. Uh, to show that you've got any real insight into what the problem statements are and uh, what's going on in their business? I mean, there's certainly plenty of questions that make me cringe. Um, but I think I think it's a balance. Like, I think depending on your experience level, um, it's different than someone 
you know, out of college, that's a new rep that I actually encourage that there's no bad question. Right. I mean, because the only way you you learn is to, to, to make a mistake. Right. To fit like and there's a fear factor that um, is present in anyone. Right. If you were went to a completely different line of work. Right. You'd have some level of fear until you got comfortable. So it's a balance like with a more seasoned team. Um, I would immediately help coach or direct in the right way if one of those cringeworthy questions came up. It's interesting. I have a completely different point of view on the on the other end of the spectrum where I'm encouraging the folks that there's as long as preparation is there. Right. A client can see that. And there's really no bad questions because I've had clients come to me and say, uh, Joe. Right. Um, Wow. Like how inquisitive he was. And, you know, I'm sure he didn't hit the mark on everything. But the fact that that client saw value in the inquisitive nature of Joe the fact that Joe came in prepared, understood their business. He may have asked a couple, maybe a silly question, but uh, the clients appreciate that. That, that it all ties back to that preparation aspect. I don't know if that, that helps out. No, no, here's what I hear you saying, Matt. You're saying, look, as long as you've done your research and you're genuine and the client can tell you're genuine and have a genuine interest, you can get away with a lot. That's very fair. Okay, fair enough. Hey, you mentioned interpersonal style a bit ago, Matt. Um, is there a right style for selling? I guess that's the first part of the question. And do you use some style or look for a style in your hiring process? Yeah, um, it's always tough, right? Here's the exciting part about being part of IBM right now. Um, we're investing in talent, right? We're open for business. We've got great growth. And with that comes the responsibility to bring more people on board to fulfill the customer's needs. Um, so when you start to get in more of the volume hiring, right, you've got to set a proper framework on the type of um, uh, characteristics that you're looking for. I'm not going to give our secret sauce out on the podcast, but I would say uh, it's different for every role, right? Um, in the space you're in, Al, right? Client engineering is a huge area that we've invested in, which is all about don't tell me IBM, show me how this technology solves the problem. I think the characteristics there around the ability and familiarity with multiple program languages, um, the love to delight the customer within a very short duration. I mean, those are attributes for that. From a selling perspective, it, it's difficult. It's, it's whether the role is if you're going to be hired as the expert on data warehousing in a particular market in IBM, there's very targeted characteristics that you look for. If you're going to be covering a large account in Canada, there's different characteristics we look for. So I'd say there's no five things you look for in quote unquote sales, right? Um, I would say there's probably... 10 different list of five I have based on the particular client facing role and the value we want that role to bring to the client. Okay. Yeah, I would say this is the interesting part when you get to the, the profession of sales, because a lot of people think it's it's all art. And in, in reality, we know it's a combination of art and science. Okay. The, uh, you know, what I convinced, what everyone needs to understand is if you don't understand the science, it doesn't matter how great of an artist you are. Like there's things that you're going to miss, but everyone's a different kind of artist. And my advice to everyone is you got to be authentic and you got to be your genuine self. And we don't all have the same 
personality. We don't have all the same interpersonal skills. And there's many different ways that people approach a problem, you know, but the science is table stakes. And then the art really is, listen, if you have no interpersonal skills and you don't want to deal with people and you have no EQ, there is no career for you in sales, clearly, right? Um, but, you know, getting your own version of the art in a way that's authentic to you and genuine while having the basics in science means you're going to be pretty successful. You should be successful from a sales perspective. The mistake people make is they either think it's all art or, you know, I've got, see if I can make him blush. I can never make this guy blush, but I got a ton of respect for Matt Kaczynski. I think he's an incredible leader. I think he's great with, I can't believe I'm saying this with a straight face. Uh, he's great with clients. He's got his own brand. Um, and I may make the mistake that I want Matt's brand to be my brand. It's never going to work because it's just not who I am. Like he's got a different style. He's genuine. He's authentic. Uh, it works really, really well for him. Uh, we may both may need to study the same science on the subject of, you know, data and artificial intelligence, but his delivery is going to be much different than mine is. And his approach may be different and that's okay. Al, um, we got to do more podcasts because in, you know, the six years of working with Frank, he's never complimented me. So why? <laughs> and this is being recorded and distributed. Thank you. You got that beard, or we we can't tell if you're blushing or not, man. So I don't know. <laughs> it looks like he might be a little bit. You're, you're doing a good job, Frank. Now you can hit him you know, when he's least expected. See, that's the beauty of it. I like that, the one-two punch. Very nice. So I'm going to continue with uh, what I'll call the artist selling for a little bit longer, and then I'll talk about how IBM differentiates itself. I want to ask you some questions there. But, Frank, I'm going to ask you this one. I, I hear a lot about how sales – the sales team is coin operated. As you know, that's used a lot, coin operated. Do you find that to be true? And or what do you think really motivates sales the most? So um, it's, it's an interesting term. I, I, I treat it differently. The most successful salespeople want to win and they are competitive. And when you win, you get a trophy or you get a medal or you get a, a world record in sales. Because, you know, everyone in sales is on some sort of variable competition. You know, the rewards come along with that. But the best sales people are about, they're about the win, right? And quite frankly, they're about solving the problem, uh, you know, the right way. So what comes along with that is remuneration, and it should. But just like LeBron James may be one of the highest paid athletes in the world, he plays for the love of the game and for the win. If he just played for a paycheck... He wouldn't be near where he, he needs to be. So inherently, if you've taken a role uh, with sales in your title, you need to be able to be competitive and you need to be able to want to win. And in our environment, you need to be part of a team. And when you do all of those things together, damn right, you want the, you know, uh, the rewards that come along with that. Uh, but for the ones that are just about, hey, where does this show up into my, in my paycheck? And they don't have the other element, they're never going to be successful. Did you, yeah, watch, I, did you watch the Michael Jordan last dance? I did indeed. Yeah. That's amazing, isn't it? I mean, there was it, a it was the only, it was the only thing on during the pandemic, right? Like, <laughs> well, I mean, literally, it was still, do you remember good. that? Yeah. It was still pretty good, man. That guy wanted to win. That guy I, um, I, um, actually, I watched the last dance, but then, you know, there was all that in the news about, you know, how Scotty uh, Pippen was portrayed in it. And he wrote a book immediately following it, which I actually read as well. So, that's a dynamic. Um, maybe your next podcast be, be around teams and team building. Um, and that would encourage the team to read that. 
But but Al, if you if you don't mind, one thing I just wanted to add to what Frank answered on you know what motivates salespeople and, and things of that nature. I don't have all the answers, but uh, I I started to do this probably two years ago, and it's not only I think really rewarding for the team, but it's extremely rewarding for me. So through the course of the week between client meetings and helping the team internally, you always hear about the stars, right? Like so-and-so did this at the client yesterday and did an amazing job. Um, so-and-so closed this deal in the face of stiff competition, you know, et cetera. So every week I, I start, and I start making a list when I hear those people's names on the call. And then every week I'll block an hour or two and I'll call those 10 people on my team. And maybe sometimes it's only a three minute talk. Sometimes it's five minutes, but I just call them to say, Hey, I heard about this. You know, I really appreciate everything you're doing. If you need any help on anything, right. Feel free to reach out to just the, it goes back to the interpersonal thing. Um, that person may be extremely coin operated or <laughs> want to win. Right. As Frank said, but that call, right. They don't get any money for it. Like, it means a lot, right? There's there's the human aspect to this thing. Um, it's a people business in which we happen to sell technology, right? So I just bring up those little things as like a tidbit that, again, um, you could go to another sales leader and they say, oh, I do that too. But it's little things that I'm not, you know, with the rat race that we're in sometimes, you forget to do, but they have a huge impact on motivation of a team. Hey, podcast listeners, Al here. I'm going to split this at this point uh, in part one and part two, and we'll continue next week. This is two sales guys walking into a bar and divulging everything. <laughs> so it was a good conversation. See you next week.